Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lift it up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the minor prophet book in the Old Testament, the minor prophet book of Micah. The minor prophet book of Micah. Now we had mentioned before that the millennial kingdom is the most spoke about subject throughout the Word of God except for the tabernacle and temple. And when we talk about the millennial kingdom, it is amazing that we can look at so many different passages in the Bible, so many different divisions of the Bible, and find the millennial kingdom be spoken. I had someone a couple years ago say, I thought the millennial kingdom was just a New Testament doctrine. It is not. It is found all throughout the Old Testament because it is primarily a promise given to the Hebrew people. And it is something that the Hebrew people look forward to quite a bit. And it was something that was given to them to give them hope in some of their darkest days. We find that to be true inside of the book of Micah and chapter number 4. The book of Micah and chapter number four. Notice with me, if you don't mind, as we look in this minor prophet book, the book of Micah, some people are still turning it. I want you to find it. Look for yourself. If it helps you, it's right after the book of Jonah, right before the book of Nahum. You might be able to find Nahum a little bit better. Just kidding. It's found in the minor prophet section. There are 12 minor prophets But don't overlook them. They are minor in size, but they're major in message. And we find that to be true in the book of Micah chapter number four. Micah chapter four, notice with me in verse one. Micah chapter four and verse one. But in the last days, it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains and it shall be exalted above the hills and the people shall flow unto it. And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the Lord of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths for the law shall go forth of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up a sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine, under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts hath spoken it. For all the people will walk every one in the name of his God, and we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, saith the Lord, I will assemble her that halteth and will gather her that is driven out and her that I have afflicted. And I will make her that halteth a remnant and her that was cast afar off a strong nation. And the Lord shall reign over them 
in Mount Zion from henceforth even forever. And thou, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come, even the first dominion, the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, would you mark a phrase that we find in the book of Micah chapter number four? The book of Micah chapter four, notice with me in verse seven, where it says, the Lord shall reign over them. The Lord shall reign over them. And with this, we want to talk to you about the subject of the king of the millennium, the king of the millennium kingdom. Who is this king and what is he going to do? What is his job? What's all affected with this king? If you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for you being a wonderful God. And as we come to you, we're just asking that you would give us grace and that you would give us mercy, that you would give us understanding and that you would help us to apply this passage, to apply this principle that you will be king over the millennial kingdom. And that we don't have to wait to the millennial kingdom. We can allow you to rule over our hearts today. Teach us what that looks like and what that means. Help us to have the hope that this idea was supposed to bring to the Hebrew people. That you will be in charge. That you will rule. And it will be a wonderful kingdom. Thank you again. Give me strength. Give me wisdom. Give me power. Even now. To do your work. And that people could walk out of here saying what a God. What a king. In your name we pray. Amen. Before we tackle the subject and the other passages, let's just walk through Micah really quick in Micah chapter four, and let's see what we can learn about this millennial kingdom passage, specifically dealing with Jesus Christ being the king of this kingdom. Notice with me in verse number one, but in the last days, so here we start to know a little bit of a time frame. We'll talk more about that in a second, but in the last days, it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains and it shall be exalted above the hills and the people shall flow to it. Now we'll get more into this verse and a different message, but we know that the real estate, the geography of this area will be changed and Jerusalem will sit on a top of the mountain on, on a higher than every other elevation at this time. Verse two, and many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. By the way, this is going to be the city of Jerusalem and to the house of God of Jacob. And he, who's this he? This is going to be God, the king of the millennial. He will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Here Jerusalem's going to be the capital and the king is going to teach and make laws and his word is going to flow from Jerusalem. Notice with me verse 3. And he, who's this he? The king. The king shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations afar off. Meaning he is going to have a distant reign and he is going to rule nations that are even far away. And he shall uh, judge among many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nation shall not lift sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. 
it's going to be a time of peace because of the ruler, because of the king of the millennial kingdom. There's not going to be any war anymore. So their utensils, their arsenals, their swords, their weapons of warfare are going to be repurposed and rechanged and recycled, renewed, reused into instruments used for everyday life. And this is giving the idea of an agricultural term because the people of that time understood agricultural. So can you imagine someone taking their sword and they're remolding it, remaking it, reforging uh, it into something that could be used as a farming implement? You're not going to need swords and weapons anymore because the king is going to be the king over all of the world. And that all of the world will be at peace. What a wonderful time. Notice with me as we continue on verse 4. But they shall sit every man under his own vine and his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts hath spoken it. For all people will walk every one in the name of his God, and we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever. Now, this is going to be easy because there's only going to be one God. You know, why is there so much turmoil in the world? We do know that religion has caused part of it. Now, there was the such thing as the Crusades, which were not done by Christians. They were done by the Catholic Church who were not following the Bible Christianity. Because of them, they had Crusades. In fact, they had about 14 of them to different places. That was not ordained of God, and it was a religious thing. Think of the Muslims, because they believe that there's only one God in and that is Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. And if you don't believe that, they believe you're an infidel. And that they have. We know that religion has caused lots of problems. Why is there going to be a peace in the millennial kingdom? Because we don't have to talk about an invisible God. Hey, you want to meet God? Let's go over here. Amen. And you can meet him for yourself. Everyone's going to have the chance to meet God. It's not going to be a, a religion of faith. It'll be a religion of sight. You want to meet God? He's over here. Let's make an appointment. Let's go see him now. Everyone will be able to have the same God. Not because it was forced upon them. It is because he's the one that's ruling and reigning at the time. And you can meet him for yourself and acknowledge him. Notice with me as it goes on in verse number six. And that day, which day, this day of the millennial kingdom, saith the Lord, will I assemble her that halteth. And I will gather her that is driven out and her that I have afflicted. Now we know this is specifically speaking about Jerusalem, but we also understand in verse 6 as an application, who's available to come to the millennial kingdom? Anyone. Anyone. It doesn't matter if they were rejected. It doesn't matter how outcast they were. God wants to take all of those people and do something special in the millennial kingdom too. Isn't that a wonderful thing? That it's a place for all those outcasts. Maybe you grew up feeling like you were an outcast. Maybe you feel like you were a loner or a loser. Guess what? In the millennial kingdom, God has a place for you as well. And he wants to do something in your life. Anyone is able to come. That's a blessing. And we come the same way through the blood of Jesus Christ. That he paid our price for us for free. And that he is the one that gains us access. That everyone is available to take this. Verse number seven. And I will make her that holdeth. A remnant and her that was a cast afar off a strong nation. And the Lord shall reign over them in Mount Zion. <laughs> Excuse me. From henceforth forever. Again, the fulfillment of the promise. God is going to take those that are rejected. And he's going to make something special out of them. Verse number eight. 
And thou, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, and unto thee it shall come, even in the dominion, the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. Here we understand the direct context that this kingdom is meant specifically for the Hebrew people. Now we as Gentiles also get to enjoy those promises because the promises are so big for everyone. Now who is this king? Now as we took Micah chapter 4 as the context. Let's kind of build upon here. The first thing I want to bring to your attention as we start searching other passages is the identification of this king. The identification of the king. Who is this king we spoke about? Now we implied that it was the Lord. Let's identify him specifically. Notice with me Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5 and notice with me in verse 1. Now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops, he that laid siege upon us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. Now what happens in verse 1 is the view switches from chapter 4 to chapter 5. And the view switched to the time of King Zedekiah. King Zedekiah was one of the last kings of Jerusalem before its destruction in 586 BC. And at this time he is surrounded by the Babylonians and he is going to be captured and he is going to be humiliated. And verse number 1 is speaking about this. Can you imagine? These people needed hope right now. They needed hope that God was going to do something with them because right now now they're surrounded by the enemy and there's nothing they can do. So now in verse number two, the focus changes to 700 years in the future. Verse number two, but thou Bethlehem Ephrata. Now we have identification of a city. Notice what it says about this little city. Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he Come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from old, from everlasting to everlasting. So now here, Micah lists which city this king of the millennial kingdom is going to be born at. And it's going to be identified as a small little town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem has never been big. Even today, Bethlehem is not a big city. And in this time, there are thousands of small little towns all throughout Judea. Out of all of those thousands of little towns, there was this little town of Bethlehem. Small little place. In fact, it had only one inn. Even in Jesus' time. One little inn. And it was filled up that day. And God identified 700 years before history caught up to it, the exact town where Jesus would be born. Again, this goes to the identification. Which king are we talking about? The king that was born in Bethlehem. Do you know any other king that was born in Bethlehem? Well, other than David. Jesus. Notice if you don't mind as it goes on, verse 3. Therefore will he give them up until the time that she that hath travaileth have brought forth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. Now there's an interval now between uh, Micah's time and the incarnation. That's what verse 3 is talking about. There's going to be a difference of time. Verse number 4. And he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the God, the Lord his God. And they shall abide for now shall he be great 
unto the ends of the earth. And this man shall be the peace when the Assyrian shall come in our land and he shall tread in our palaces. Then we shall raise up against him seven shepherds and eight principal men and they shall waste the land of Assyria with a sword in the land of Nimrod and the entrances thereof and he will deliver us from the Assyrian when he cometh into our land and when he trendeth our borders. Again, the view now shifts. It deals with the second coming of Jesus Christ when he rules and he, when he reigns. Now the gospel record of Luke is going to identify who is this king. Luke 1.32, we're not going to turn there, but here it clearly identifies that it's Jesus Christ of this lineage of David born in Bethlehem. That was this fulfillment of promise. And he was born in Bethlehem as prophesied. And it's this same king who is going to be the king of the millennial kingdom. The identification of the king. Next thing we want to show you through scripture, turn with me to the book of Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. So if you're in the book of Micah, turn to your left to several minor prophet books till you get to Ezekiel, then or to Daniel. Daniel is going to be the last of the major prophets right before Hosea. If you hit Ezekiel, you went a little bit too far. Daniel chapter number 2. And let's cover the time of the king. When is Jesus Christ going to rule and reign over the earth? Well, we know that the first time that the Lord Jesus Christ came, he did not come to rule. He came to die on the cross for your sins and for mine. But there is a time when Jesus Christ is going to come back to this earth and he is going to rule and he is going to reign on this earth. The book of Daniel deals with a king ruling at this time of Babylon called Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And in this dream, he had something that was very important. And when he awoke up, he knew he needed this interpreted. And he wanted to make sure that he got the right interpretation so he didn't tell the rest of the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians in his court what the dream was. And they said, how can we tell you what the dream is unless you tell us? He says, then you guys aren't the real thing. I want someone to tell me what the dream is and then the interpretation so I know it is true. This is important. I can't mess around with false interpretations. And so Daniel was sent. Daniel who was able to talk to the Lord. And notice what it says starting at verse uh, chapter number 2. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 31. Daniel then tells Nebuchadnezzar what the dream is and the interpretation. Daniel chapter 2 verse 31. Thou, O king, sawest and behold a great image. And this great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. The image head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part iron and part clay. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut without hands, which smote the image upon his feet and were like, were of clay, iron and clay and break them in pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, the gold broken into pieces together and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away that no place was found for them. And a stone that was smote the image became a great mountain and fill the whole earth. This is the dream. And we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, art a king of kings. For the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, 
and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beast of the field and the fowls of the heaven hath he given into thine hand and hath made thee ruler over them. Thou art this head of gold. And after thee shall raise another kingdom inferior to thee. And another third kingdom of brass, which shall rule over the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things, and as iron breaketh all these, it shall break in pieces and bruise. Whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. And there shall be in it of strength of iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with the miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of the iron, part clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as the iron is not mixed with clay. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall be not left to other people but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. Now as Daniel is talking to Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar had this dream, Daniel begins to interpret. Now thankfully for us we have the light of history. During Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar's time this was their future. For us, most of it has come to pass as history with a small little bit still yet in our future. We know that Nebuchadnezzar was this head of gold. Daniel had told him this. Nebuchadnezzar was a strong king. Nobody told him what to do. He was able to determine right and wrong, put someone in jail, take him out of jail. Nobody would question his actions. The Babylonian kingdom was taken over in 536 BC by the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire took over and they ruled for quite a while until 333 BC when Alexander the Great came and destroyed the Persian Empire and set up the Hellenistic or the Greek Empire. The Hellenistic or Greek Empire kind of ruled the world from Europe all the way up to India for many years until the Roman Empire took over. So you had the head of brat or head of gold the arms of uh, chest of silver, that's the Persian Empire. After that, you have the belly and thighs of brass. That is going to be the Greek Empire, followed by the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was pictured as iron because they went and marched everywhere and conquered everywhere. They went to Germany, they went to Gaul, they went to England, they conquered everything. Now, the one thing about each of those kingdoms all the way up to the Roman Empire is that they were all taken over. The Persians took over and replaced the Babylonians. The Hellenistic uh, Empire took over the Persian and defeated and destroyed them. The Romans came and destroyed the Hellenistic Empire, but the Roman Empire was never conquered. It collapsed within. And today, we all have what we call Western civilization. We all 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 are remnants of that Roman culture, thought, and mindset. That our laws are based off of Roman laws. Our society and culture are based off that Roman. We are part of that feet of clay and iron. So the iron is mixed in. It, we have it 
that culture, that similar culture, but we're all unique peoples and we all squabble and get along. For example, as many times as we get along with England, we still have squabbles with them. They have the same culture, same mindset, but we have different squabbles, different nations. This is a world that is not united. It is divided, even though they have the same type of culture and mindset put into it. We're in those days right here. So what's the next thing to happen? Notice in verse 14. And in those days, or in the days of these kings, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom. So we know that this is a future event. In verse number 44, Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, that shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume these kingdoms and it shall stand forever all the way until time stops, until we enter eternity future. This is a future event. So when will this kingdom be set up? This is something set up right at the end of time. Right the next thing after the millennial kingdom is eternity future. So it's nestled, it's still in our future, but it's going to be nestled at the end of time. Let's now speak about the government of the king, Isaiah chapter 9. So if you're in Daniel, turn to your left, you get to Ezekiel, Lamentations, Jeremiah, Isaiah. Isaiah chapter number 9. And let's see how this kingdom will be set up. Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. And notice with me in verse 6. Now normally we quote this verse nearing Christmas time. Because it speaks about the child that was given. But notice that it goes beyond just Christ being born. And it goes to the millennial kingdom. Notice with me Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6. For unto us a child is born. And unto us a child is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. So notice there's a child that was going to be born. And this child is going to be born. And all of the government, the millennial kingdom, is going to be placed on his shoulder. He is the one who's going to rule and reign it. Notice what it's going to be called. And his name shall be called Wonderful. His name is Wonderful. What else? His name shall be Counselor. This carries the idea that he is the one who's guiding the ship. He's the one giving advice. He's the one directing traffic. His name shall be the mighty God. If you ever needed to know if Jesus Christ was God, here's a verse that says it. This child that was born, he is called the mighty God because he is God robed in flesh. He says that his name shall be the everlasting father. If you needed something else just to make sure you had it. Jesus the son is the same as the everlasting father. They are the same. The prince of peace which is a common name for Jesus. Notice with me in verse 7 speaking about this government. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice and from henceforth even forever the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. That Jesus Christ will be the ruler of this kingdom. How is this kingdom set up? Well we would often call this type of government a theocracy. 
Thi means God. Ocracy carries the idea that to be ruled by. It is a government ruled by God. God is the head. Now, how does a theocracy work? That's a good question. We know that we have different types of government. There's a bureaucracy, the government of the bureau or the drawer. That's bureaucrats. And that's the type of government we have there. The bureaucrats run our world. You have a monarchy, a government ruled by a king. You have a democracy, a government ruled by the people. You have a constitutional republic. You know, so we have different types of governments. In the millennial kingdom, the type of government that we will have is not a democracy. Sorry to tell you, you're not going to vote. You don't have a say. God's going to be in charge. How does a theocracy work? The idea of a theocracy is that each person has the right and responsibility to go to God for themselves to find out what God would have them to do. By the way, this is what God wants for us now. This is a very special and dear doctrine to us called individual soul liberty. Individual soul liberty. If you don't mind, the Bible speaks about this in the book of Romans chapter 4. Turn with me if you don't mind to the book of Romans chapter 4. 14, Romans 14. Individual soul liberty. That everyone has the right and responsibility to go to God for themselves and find out what God would have them to do. Now, this is important because we like someone else to tell us what to do. It is a lot of work to go to God and find out what God has us to do. But yet, this is the way that God wants us to have. Why? Because we're going to stand before God and give an account. When you go give an account, you're not going to have your pastor there. You're not going to have your parents there. You're not going to have your teacher there, nor your president. You are going to stand before God by yourself, and you're going to give an account of how well you obeyed what God gave you to do. You said, but I didn't know what I was supposed to do. But everyone had the right to go up to God and the, and the ability to go to God. What do I mean by that? Some people imagine that because I'm a pastor that I have a secret access way to go to God. Some might imagine that I have a red phone in my office with a glass cover and that whenever I needed to get a hold of God, I would just lift it up and, yo, God, I need some help. I don't have one of those. Some people might imagine that because I'm a pastor, I have a special calling code access to God, that 1-800-PLEASE-PRAY. I don't have a calling card. Do you know that you have as much access to God as I do? That you don't have to have a special position. You don't have to have a special ability. You don't have to have a special place. You have as much access to God as I do. And because you have your own access to God, each of us have our own right and responsibility to go to God for ourselves and find out what he wants for our life. Now, this is a freeing doctrine. What do I mean by that? That means I don't have to make people believe the way that I want them to believe. I don't have to twist someone's arm. I don't have to hold them at knife point, gun point, and say, you believe this or else. My job as a preacher is I'm a messenger boy. I give information and people make their own decision based off the information given to them. Knowing that they have to stand before God and give an account. 
All I can do is teach people how they can get a hold of God. I can show them what the Bible says as God has given the Bible as his guide, but every person has to make their own decision before the Lord. You know what that means? That means every Muslim has the right to believe however they want. (gasps) Every atheist has a right to believe however they want. Every Wiccan has their right and responsibility to believe however they want, knowing that at the very end, they're going to stand before God and give an account for how they live their life. All I can do is give information, but they have to go to God for themselves. Now, I can teach them. I can guide them. I can encourage them, but they have to do it for themselves. Romans 14 speaks about this in detail. Notice with me, Romans 14 in verse 1. Him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful dispensations. What this means is that different people are going to believe different ways. Someone might be considered stronger in the faith. Others might be weaker in the faith. Now we're supposed to take everybody. We're glad to take everyone in, but not to doubtful dispensations. We're not going to fight over this. We're glad to accept and try to help. And we're going to take you from where you are and move forward, but we're not going to get in debates over this. Notice with me verse 2. For one believeth that he may eat all things, and another who is weaketh eateth herbs. So here's the setting. One guy says, listen, according to the Bible, God made us to be vegetarians. So it is my personal belief that we should not eat meat. We're supposed to just eat our veggies. Praise the Lord. That's what I'm Great. Another guy says, listen, I've read the Bible and God's made all things unclean. Uh, are all, unth- all things clean and I can eat whatever I want. And it is not a sin for me to eat a pork chop. And so the guy who eats, who uh, is weaker in the faith, meaning that he hasn't quite come to the conclusion that God has given him that liberty to eat everything, says, listen, if you're going to be totally right with God, you have to eat nothing but herbs, nothing but grass, nothing but plants. You're not right with God. The guy says, listen, I can eat whatever I want. You're the one limiting yourself. You're the one being foolish. Do people fight like this? Absolutely, they do. And so the Bible says here's a scenario, a scenario that gets carried out even these 2,000 years later, that people get in a fight, what they can eat and whatnot. And then it just branches off from there. But he's given an illustration. Verse number three, let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. And let not him that eateth not judge him that eateth for what God hath received him. All right, so God says, listen, those two shouldn't fight. The guy who eats vegetables and just came to the conclusion this is what I'm supposed to do doesn't judge the guy with me. That guy's in sin because he's eating a pork chop. And the guy who's eating the pork chops doesn't look down and judge him. Listen here, that guy's stupid. He's just missing out in life. You know what? Let them do their own things. Notice as it goes on. Verse number four, who art thou? That's a good question. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? You understand? Both of them have to stand before God and give an account. That's a big enough load. He doesn't have to stand before God and me. He has to stand before God and give an account. He's the one that has to. So all I can do is give information. He does whatever he wants, knowing he's going to have to stand before God and give an account. God is his master. God's the one he has to give an account to. I don't have to worry and fret about, oh man, he's eating a pork chop. He doesn't realize what he's going to do with his life. He's going to die and God's going to strike him down. You know how many people lose 
so much sleep because they're worried about what someone else is doing. We have enough thing trying to take care of our own backyard. We don't have to worry about someone else. God is going to stand them, give an account. You let God do his work with his own servants. That helps out. Notice this goes on, verse 5. One man esteemeth one day above another. Another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. So, scenario two. I believe that this is a special day. And nobody should work on this day. Everyone needs to take a special holiday and enjoy this day. Someone else says, hey, you know, it's just another day to work. I mean, let's be honest. A lot of people say that Sunday is a day of rest. You know, for your pastor, it is not a day of rest. There's a lot of things going on. <laughs> so you understand there's some people that have come to the conclusion that because I'm working so hard on a Sunday that I'm wrong. Well, that's what I'm supposed to do. You understand? There are some people say, oh, Christmas. Christmas is such a holiday, special day. You shouldn't do anything on Christmas. And other people say, you know what? I'm going to use this day to enjoy and we're going to go do other things. Wonderful. Sometimes people will come here and say, hey, are you having a good Friday service? No. <gasps> what kind of Christians are you? It's not our thing. And you know what? Does that mean that we're horrible Christians because we don't observe Good Friday? No. no. You understand? Some people esteem some days better than others. Everyone should be fully persuaded in their own mind. What does that mean? I need to find out what God wants me to do and I'm going to do it. I need to be persuaded this is what God would have me to do for this day. Knowing that I'm going to stand before and give an account. Everyone has to come to their own conclusion. You know, that's the thing here. I give them information and they come to their own conclusion based off the Bible, knowing that one day they're going to stand before God and give an account. Knowing that he's the one that's going to judge them. He's the one that they have to give an account to. All I have to do is be persuaded. This is what God has given me to do and I'm going to do it. This kind of takes the weight off, doesn't it? I don't have to force people to believe anything. I just give information. They do whatever they want. God will deal with them. Okay? Verse 6. He that regardeth the day, regardeth it to the Lord. He that regardeth not to the day, to the Lord, he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, and for he giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not to the Lord, he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. So pause here. Now we change the subject a little bit. Now, if I can't force anyone to believe like I do, well, then why bother? How do I convince someone to believe like I do if I can't twist their arm? How do I convince someone to believe like I do if I can't drag them to church in handcuffs? I mean, how do I convince someone? Well, the Bible says this, for none of us liveth to himself and no man dieth to himself. What we have is something called influence influence. Every single one of us have influence. None of you live in a bubble by yourself. Your actions affect someone else. If you're in this church today, there is a child who looks up to you, think you are the greatest Christian in the world. Some of you, that's a scary thought, isn't it? But kids are looking to you. Someone's looking up to you. Your neighbors may think, your co-workers may say, man, that's the first real Christian I met. And that person may think, oh man, I'm just struggling in my Christian life. You understand? We all have influence. All, why should anyone listen to me? Influence. 
I try to live my life in a way that's pleasing to God. And people say, I want to hear what he has to say. Our influence, our influence. It's our only way to convince people. I could give a message, but if I have no influence, that, that message just falls on deaf ears. Why should someone listen? Why should someone give me a hearing? Why should someone consider what I say? Influence. Influence. And we have to guard our influence. Notice as it goes on, verse 8. For whether we live, we live to the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. Now again, a reminder, God is the one who's our judge. We can't twist anybody's arm. All I can do is influence someone knowing that they're going to stand before God. Verse 9, for to this end, Christ both died and rose and revived that he might be Lord of the dead and the living. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all, all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Let us not therefore judge another one another anymore, but judge this rather that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. So again, this is put in a big deal. Jesus Christ is going to be the one who is the ruler of the millennial kingdom. And every single one of us will stand before him and give an account. Now, during the millennial kingdom, we know that the king, that judges, judgment will work a little bit differently. So let's say that someone robbed a bank today. So you would have someone get robbed. You would have to do an investigation. You would have to go find the person. You would have to prove that person did it. You would have to put them on court. You'd have to deal with all the lawyers and all that fun stuff. It would be a while before that person was prosecuted properly in today's thing. But in the millennial kingdom, if someone decided to rob a bank, the God who rules it, does he not know who already did it? You don't need a court. He's already found you guilty. And judgment will be swift. Why? Because God is going to be the judge. He's going to be the ruler. Everyone gives an account to him. That's a theocracy. That we're going to give an account to him. He is the final say. He is the judge. Now, again, as an application, if I can't force someone to believe like I do, the only tool that I have in my bag is my influence. This is why we try to live good lives. I don't dress the way that I do because I feel like if I don't, I'm going to hell. Neither should you. The way that I dress helps me to have influence. Let me give an example. Let's say that I was going to do marriage counseling. And so they had an appointment. They're going to meet me in the office. And when they come to the office, I am kicked back. My legs are up on the... Um, on the desk, I'm wearing short shorts, an ACDC Highway to Hell t-shirt. I have a cigar that I'm smoking. What's up? Am I going to have a lot of influence to help a couple who's having problems in their marriage? No. no. We understand the reason why I dress that way is not because of sin. It's because I want to have the best influence in working with people. The things that I do in my life. There are some things that are not sinful, but I choose not to do in my life in order to have a better influence. Notice this last verse that we read, verse 13. Let us not therefore judge 
one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or occasion of fall. Notice that word stumbling block. Today, we use that word in a different sense. It is called offense. Offense. To offend someone is to put a stumbling block, occasion of fall in a brother's way. I can offend someone and lose my influence. I could spend 30 years building up my testimony and in 30 seconds ruin everything because I said something stupid, something foolish. And now people don't listen to me anymore. I could get engaged in a sin, a moment of sin and lose my influence over people. So we understand that whereas I can't force someone to believe, what I can do is work in my own life and help it so I have the best influence around those. That I don't have something that offends someone. Now the Bible is offensive enough. It hurts. It causes a lot of people to stumble because they don't like what the Bible says. I don't have to add to it by putting my own idiosyncrasies, by putting my own garbage in and making people listen. Does it make sense? The only tool that we have is our influence. This is why we try to live good moral lives. Not only are we going to stand before God and give an account, but I would want to live in such a life that people say, I will listen to him. This person has influence. This person seems to have a walk with God. There seems to be something with it. That's why people come to church, by the way. Why do people come to church? If they've never been to this church before, why do they come in? Because they're looking for something. They need help. And if we are just like the world, they're not looking for answers of the world. The world failed them. They're looking for something different. In fact, one of the greatest evidences that Christianity works is not that we're living a better life. It is that our life is different. And people are looking for something different because the other world did not help them. And so we understand as different as Christians, we are peculiar. We're different. Not because we're purposely goofballs. It's because we're different than the world. But yet that has influence because the world has failed them and they're looking for something different. Does it make sense? The only tool I have my tool back. Now, all this does goes with the theocracy. We're all going to stand before God and give an account. He is going to be the king. He's the one that's going to rule. I'm not the boss. He is. All I could do is point them to the boss. And the only way they'll listen to me is if I keep my influence. So, dear friend, first of all, is Jesus your king? Do you acknowledge him as king? Do you acknowledge that you're going to stand before him and give him account? That's where you start your own personal accountability with the Lord. But after that, how is your influence? Why should people listen to you? Do you have a life that's worth replicating? Do you have a life that people say that is what a Christian should be like? Do you have a life where people say that's what I need? This is what we should have and guard our influence. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time 
to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920-530-6308. Once again, that number is 920-530-6308. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.